Welcome everybody to the latest Truth and Consequences Zoom chat. I am really excited about this one today because I have been a big uh, fan of Elon Sy's work for a long time and I'm really happy to have, I've talked to him, he spoke on the phone, never on Zoom. So I'm happy to have him here today. John is a professor of political science at Vanderbilt University. It's a new book out called The Bitter Lie of the 2020 Election. It's great, you should read it. John, welcome, thanks for being here. <laughs> there it is. I said The Bitter Lie, The Bitter End, sorry, The Bitter End, excuse me. And his book in 2016 called The Identity Crisis, uh, great book, one of my favorite books about 2016, the one I think I learned the most from. I'm just gonna put the, uh, a link to the book in the chat so everybody can buy it because you should, it's great, it's a really fun read. Uh, I just finished it last night, I just, um, I learned a lot. Uh, so let's just start off with, I guess you have a really interesting um, perspective on American politics is different I think than what we norm, how we've come to think of it in the last couple of years. Polarization has been sort of the dominant trend in American politics, uh, as far as the divide in the parties has grown uh, wider and wider. But you sort of, you bring a new um, element into this discussion, we call calcification. When you, you say the parties have become more hardened. So talk a little bit about that, 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 that phenomenon of calcification. Yeah, sure. Electric. Thanks, um, and thanks for having me, Michael. I really appreciate it, and thank you all for joining. Um, when we talk about polarization, we, what we usually mean is that the two parties have, are further apart ideologically than they used to be, and there's less overlap between them. And so they're also more internally homogeneous. So, you know, the Democratic Party is more consistently liberal and the Republican Party is more consistently conservative. Um, and that's true and that's important. Um, when we talk about calcification, we're talking about, I think, um, something that's more than just polarization, um, although certainly polarization is underpinning it. You know, in the body, calcification means hardening, like calcified arteries or what have you. And the same thing is true when we talk about politics. So we think of calcification as people are more wedded to their political predispositions and values. So it's harder to change their basic political evaluations and it's harder to change um, like who they vote for at the end of the day. Um, one of the ways you can see this is it is by look, if you look at like presidential approval over time and you just, you, you, you measure not, um, how popular the president is, but you just measure sort of the amplitude and how much presidential approval varies across right. time, depending on new events. You know, as you, as you go to the Obama presidency and then to the Trump presidency and even to Biden's presidency, the range is really narrow now. Um, it's harder to get both your people, your party's voters to disapprove of, to, of you. It's harder to get the other party's voters to approve of you. So I think part of what's happening in calcification is that people aren't really willing to change their minds about um, you know, central political figure like the president. And then when it comes to, to voting in the election, it's just harder to get people to swing. Right. So this swing, swing does happen, but it's not, it's not, it's it's just much more reduced in scope than it used to be. It, so it, a lot less split ticket voting. You saw a lot of that in 20, um, 20, I think there was one Senate race, which a senator won in a state that yeah. was won by the, the uh, candidate of the other party, which was yeah. in Collins in Maine. Um, it's interesting. I think you're seeing a little less of that in the, in the midterms, if only because you're seeing a, if you look at some of these statewide races, there's a weird sort of divide between, for example, like in Ohio, Mike DeWine's up by, you know, 20 points in the poll is going to win easily. You know, J.D. Vance is narrowly ahead of Tim Ryan in the Senate race. Um, governor's race in Georgia, you've seen a similar phenomenon, which, which makes you like think that, well, actually, well, in some cases, candidate quality still might matter. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the paradoxes, I think, of calcified politics um, is that 
the best, sorry, uh, one of the ways to talk about, uh, one of the paradoxes of calcified politics is that um, big things often have only small effects, but small changes have big consequences. And right. so you can get uh, a world in which despite a pandemic, despite an, a really sharp economic contraction, despite a bunch of other things that happened, let's say in 2020, people don't really wanna move from their candidate preference, but right. any, any, like anything that nudges politics in one direction or the other, anything that might make the difference between a narrow J.D. Vance win and a narrow J.D. Vance loss can have tremendous consequences. In part, this is because this is another idea that we introduce in the book. No, it's not original to us to be clear, but one of the things that's true in American politics is that the two parties are at pretty rough parity, like yeah. in terms of the, the percentage of Americans that identify as Democrat or Republican, very, very closely divided. And that's true in the House and the Senate, um, where almost any election offers a party the chance to take back one of the chambers or both. And of course the White House eventually in, in four years. So in that context, um, the difference between J.D. Vance being a, you know, a higher quality versus a lower quality candidate might mean the difference between the Republicans having 51 votes and not having 50. Look what happened in Georgia. Look what happened in Georgia Senate race. Special, special elections in 2020, 2021 are a perfect example of that. And I, and you could argue in that situation, I mean, there's a lot of phenomenon that, 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 that phenomenon that affected what happened in that election, but candidate quality, I think did matter. You had two relatively weak Republican candidates, not great candidates. Um, uh, on, on the Republican side and two strong candidates on the Democratic side. Of course, there are other factors as well. It's hard to say that one factor played a role there, but you know, the fact right. that Kelly Loeffler had no uh, political experience, was her first really campaign. Did that make a difference in her losing the, I mean, maybe. And if it did, that everything that's yeah. happened last two years wouldn't have happened if not for the, uh, the results of that race. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, to give you another example of how these sort of small changes make a difference. If you go, if you think back about Donald Trump's approval rating, and you think about how stable it was. Well, it wasn't perfectly stable. And you know, there was a moment, let's say uh, it was in March of 2020 when you know, he sort of pivoted and took the pandemic more seriously for I'd say like several weeks, few weeks um, before he pivoted to like telling, telling everybody we should reopen the country. Right. His approval rating went up like four or five points to like about the highest it had been it, in quite some time. Almost, I think he got at one poll, he got to 50%. If yeah, I he got, I think on the average, he got to like more like 45. But then, yeah, right, um, right. But I mean, the difference, if you just do a simple like forecast of like how elections turn out based on presidential approval numbers, that difference of four or five points could plausibly have been the difference between winning and losing the election. Right. Because a, a four point swing in approval, five point swing in approval is enough to swing the national popular vote by a margin that's enough to have given him the electoral college vote based given the Republican advantage in the electoral college right now. So, yeah, like these small differences make can make a huge impact, even though calcified politics means that there are, are pretty reliably small differences. Right. By the way, just for those of you listening, if you hear a dog uh, losing his mind in the background, that is my dog losing his mind over some people who are pairing out, uh, fixing outside. So I apologize that for all of you who are listening to that. I apologize to him also. I mean, he can't help himself. Uh, so to, to your point, there's a couple of data points that really jumped out to me in the book that I think are worth highlighting here. First, you point out that the, um, there are many GOP voters who didn't like Trump. This is one of the interesting things in the book that, that I sort of was an interesting point to, point to make that about 20% of the Republican party doesn't like really care for Trump. 
but their tribal identity still leads them to vote Republican. And this, I think, speaks to some the polarization issue to some extent, uh, and how you know, and and I think how how tribal identity is such a strong factor for both parties. The other thing that I found fascinating was this: you had this interesting thing about how um, the more okay, the more voters, the voters, the issues the voters cared about the most were the ones that also divided them the most. Yeah. And that's connected, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, we use a, a type of experimental methodology in the book to get voters to kind of reveal what their real issue priorities are. Right. The, the essential, the gist of that experiment is you're, you're, you're given like two different packages of issues, like build a border wall, you know, uh, ban late-term abortion, enact a Green New Deal, right? And, and, you, and you have to choose like that package versus the opposite. And that sort of tells you like, oh, like how much do you, are you willing to give up like a more border wall in order to get a Green New Deal right. or vice versa? So one of the things when, when you look at what people's priorities ultimately are, um, they are often like, not just like impeaching Trump was always at the top, regardless of whether you wanted to impeach him or you didn't want to impeach him. You, you like, said that was the, like in 2019 polling, that was the single most important issue. The most important thing. But it's it's followed by a lot of the Trump immigration agenda, um, like uh, um, the family separation, uh, border wall, those kinds of questions. And so what's interesting about that is that there are issues where you can get a little bit more bipartisan consensus. Taxing the wealthy is one of them. Right. Because um, there's a substantial number of Republicans that will back that. But it's not a high priority for those Republicans. Um, and it's not even a high priority for Democrats because they're so much more focused on sort of the issues that are identity driven, pretty much central to Trump's agenda. So what that ultimately does is it helps to that's one of the things that helps to create both polarization and I think additional calcification is that people's political priorities center on the things that divide them. It is also one of the things that keeps Republicans loyal to Trump. Right. Because, you know, you would think that the Republicans who wanted to tax the wealthy would be upset because the Trump tax plan did the opposite, but right. they don't really prioritize that issue very much. And instead they prioritize the things that Trump did and so, or wanted to do. So their priorities helped keep them on Trump's side. So one of the ways to think about this is Trump gave them what they wanted right. at the end of the day. Like he was an orthodox enough Republican that there was little reason for Republicans to sort of break from him, even though if you ask them specific questions about Trump, they're happy to tell you he's not a nice guy or he's, right. you know, they're happy to sort of criticize him in certain ways, but they're not fundamentally going to leave him and leave the party. And I, and I, I think I, and part of that has got to be that the level, and you talk about this in the book too, the level of antipathy between the two parties is at a record high, right? Republicans really don't like Democrats and Democrats really don't like Republicans. And in a sense, like there's a, we can joke about this sort of notion of owning the libs, but I, I do think that like owning the libs is really kind of the, the motto of the modern Republican party. And it's what unites them is upsetting liberals as, and doing things that liberals don't like. Uh, and it kind of it becomes a rallying uh, call for them. Yeah, it, it absolutely plays to this broader trend, which is um, the public's view of, 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 of its own political party, the one that, that people are loyal to has been kind of consistently positive, but their view of the opposite party has gotten much more unfavorable with time. And of course, if you ask other kinds of questions, like, you know, do these different traits, you know, closed-minded or, 
whatever, describe the opposite party, you know, large majorities of people are oftentimes willing to associate those traits with the opposite party. If, so if again, gonna... this is one of the things that makes it challenging to like, even if you have a, even if you are, um, I think a candidate that, you know, presents certain limitations for your own, for for the party that they represent, like Trump did for many Republicans right. at the end of the day, do you want to give the Democrats a win? Probably right. At the end of the day, the choice is if if it's if it's support a candidate you may not like, you may think um, is not very good at his job, may think is you know a jerk. You're going to put that aside because well, yep. he's not a liberal. A liberal yeah, and it's, it's, yeah, it's absolutely right. So you know whether it's driven by just the pure emotion of of not liking the opposite party, or whether it's driven by the fact that the opposite party is likely to do things in policymaking that you're going to disagree with. Either either way, right? There's there's less reason to be willing to cross over to the other side. Now, the small number of people that do, again, can make that difference. That makes a huge the, difference. Right. Like again, that the 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 venerable swing voter is, I think, you know, increasingly an endangered species. I mean, and do you think to that point, I mean, Democrats are not immune to this. I mean, I think one point also that comes across, and I remember seeing this a couple of, maybe last year, maybe it was even 2020, polling that showed Democrats had even more negative views of Republicans than Republicans have of Democrats. Now, I get why that is, because of Trump. It's a Trump phenomenon. Yeah. Democrats hate Trump. I understand that. But to be clear, I, I think it's informing this point. It's not just Republicans who hate uh, Democrats, not just uh, Republicans who define their policy agenda in part by being the opposite of what Trump believes. And I think on race, that's particularly interesting because you make a point that Trump really kind of cemented in the racial divide between the two parties. But in a lot yeah. of ways, he cemented it not just on the Republican side, but the Democratic side. Democrats have become way more liberal on racial issues than they were before Trump, you know, rose yeah. to prominence. Yeah. And this this starts um, in 2015, 2016, with his first presidential campaign. Right. Before he's um, president. You know, I think that, that's what I think is interesting about it. Before yeah. So it's fascinating, you know, take an issue like immigration, um, where there had been some prior, like, growing difference between Democrats and Republicans. On the, let's say the basic question of should we increase or decrease the level of immigration to this country or right. keep it the same. Um, but the, the, the amount of difference between the two parties uh, increased more between 2015 and 2020 than it had in the previous two decades. And that is solely because of, on, of Democrats moving away from Trump. So when Trump says things that's that are critical of immigration, you know, if you're a Democrat and you're faced with the tension between having, ha having those views yourself, but also being a Democrat who doesn't like Donald Trump, the easiest right. way to resolve that tension is to, is to say the opposite. And so Trump, I think, helped create uh, a more liberal Democratic Party on these issues, um, and it's seemingly fairly durably. You know, it's even now after his presidency, I don't think the party is really going back to the old days when we used to describe the Democratic coalition as being pretty much divided between, you know, racial conservatives, white racial conservatives, and either white racial liberals and or black Americans and other people of color. Now, increasingly, the Democratic Party, I think, has some more consensus on basic questions around immigration and civil rights. And John, that was a perfect segue to my next question, actually, which was about, I think, the most underappreciated shift in American politics in the last, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years, is the uh, um, ideological homo homogeneity of the two parties, which for those of us who remember politics, you know, before 2008, I guess, just didn't mm -hmm. exist. 
I mean, there, I mean, I shouldn't say it didn't exist. It was very different. There was a much more heterogeneous the two parties. Yeah. And, and so there's, a, there's an odd paradox here, which is that Democrats went from 60 seats in the Senate in 2009 and 10, right, to 50 seats uh, 12, 10 years, well, I guess 11 years later. Mm -hmm. And that much smaller uh, 50 seat, obviously it's the, the bare minimum, has been much more effective in many respects than even that 60 seat majority was. And I think a lot of it's because the party is a much more liberal party and pretty much all of its members are much more homogenous in their point of view. The two exceptions of, of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, but they yeah. really are the exceptions. If you go back 10 years ago, there was a whole ton of exceptions like people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, I think we get in news coverage of politics, attention to divides within parties because that's what's newsworthy. It's not newsworthy if Joe Manchin agrees with Nancy Pelosi and they get stuff done, and that's you know it's a tidy little. Maybe that is, but everything else. Uh, no, but you're but you know what I'm saying, like right, you know, of course, of course. But you know, in reality, like we we looked at this in the Democratic primary. You know, that was also supposed to be this ideological battle royale between the progressives and the moderates. But then you go and you look at like what are the opinions of Biden supporters and Warren supporters and Sanders supporters. And any differences that were there on lots of different issues are really differences of degree rather than differences of kind. We're talking about like how large is the majority that supports raising taxes on the wealthy and a larger government role in healthcare. Um, it's not that Biden and Sanders agreed on exactly how to do that, but the differences between them are just not as dramatic as oftentimes they are, are, are made to seem or right. that the candidates themselves make them seem. So that kind of homogeneity, again, it doesn't mean that everyone's on accord on everything. It doesn't mean you can't find pockets of, of opinion that are still counter to the party platform, like those Republicans that want to raise taxes on the wealthy, let's say. Right. But it's just to say that if you think about it, like you were describing it over time, you know, it's a very different situation than used to exist. You know, take pick your, pick your moment, but certainly let's just 50, 60s, 70s, when you really did have you know, this a real ideological blend within each party. I, I don't remember the exact number. I think right now there are three, I think there are three, is it three or four, uh, three or four, I think it's four uh, senators who are in states that are not, they were not won by their candidate, their party. It's like John Tester, Sherrod Brown, two states that are won by Trump, Susan Collins was won by Biden. And I guess Pat Toomey, um, who's, you know, a senator yeah. from Tyrant. Mansion, yep. Mansion, Mansion, right? Mansion. Sorry. So it's a very small number. Yeah. I, I in two, nineteen in two thousand eight when Obama was elected, it was something like eighteen. I think it was mm -hmm. maybe. It's just a huge shift. Yeah. Um, and you know, in a weird way, and I made this point. I made this point in twenty twenty. In a weird way, it's good for Democrats because they can actually have much more consensus than they've ever had before. All the Democrats and disarray stuff kind of doesn't. It's not really, especially this last two years of Congress you know, really wasn't in play. It was really Joe Manchin being a pain in the ass more than really the Democrats in disarray. I mean, that was that thing. And of course, the flip side is on the Republican side, to the extent that there are, you know, anti-Trump people, they've basically just been pushed out of the party. They don't really exist. In, I mean, you know, I don't, a few of them might, I think there's two two candidates up who voted for Trump's impeachment in 2021. Yeah. Uh, and they are both, uh, I think one is look toss up, I think one might actually win. But in general, I mean, the, all those House members who voted to impeach Trump have basically been pushed out, many in Republican primaries. So you have this incredible homogeneity. That speaks to your point, I think, about calcification. Yeah, yeah no, and I, would, I, would, I think the other dynamic you can see in, in the Republican Party, um, compare the, the, the Republican Party's efforts on immigration reform 
not just under George W. Bush, but in like 2013, where you had like the Senate gang that got that bipartisan bill passed, but then it ultimately didn't make it through the House after the right. midterm election in 2014, uh, after Eric Cantor and some of these other Republicans were defeated by these insurgent candidates. And you would you now ask yourself, like, how many Republicans would stick their neck out for immigration reform? Zero. Um, how many would yeah, stick their neck out? I think, out it's, just I think it's really time. hard. I think Trump, in some sense, he didn't drum out, like, the pro-immigration people. Marco Rubio is still in the party. It's just that I think those folks have shifted their view. And so what, what appeared to be a factional battle within the party between conservatives and moderates about exactly how to do immigration reform now looks to me like, something that's been largely resolved um, in favor of the, the more hardline view. Only, only Trump himself probably could have produced that compromise, but we talk about this in the book. There were several moments where that was possible. You would imagine like 20 billion for the border wall plus path to citizenship for dreamers or some other kind of um, uh, measure. And when he flirted with that compromise, the conservative hardline faction of the party yeah. pushed back and he ultimately sided with them. And I guess I just it doesn't give me any confidence that there's a group of Republicans that's willing to stick their neck out and work on this. And so, yeah, you basically are relying on the uh, on the homogeneity of the Democratic Party to get this kind of work. Right. Um, yeah. We're it's not seeing that. There's like three kinds of Republicans now. They're the, the MAGA true believers, of which there are quite a few. There are the ones who basically decided they couldn't enable Trump any longer. And so they left Congress. And a lot of them left in 2020. Uh, Jeff Flake is sort of the most obvious example, basically said when he when he said he wasn't running for election, I there's one way to win in the modern Republican Party, and I don't want to do it. So I'm not going to run. And then there are the ones like the Marco Rubios, like the Lindsey Grahams, who basically just decided that their ambition is more important than whatever they truly believe. And they're going to do whatever they have to do to um, appease Trump. I think that's kind of the, where the party has, has, has gotten to. And you could argue they're not true believers. I'm not sure it really matters at this point. Yeah. I mean, well, this is what, the, the, you can also sort of see that the, this is a downstream conscious uh, consequence of partisan parity too. So if, if you always have a chance of, of winning the next election, like if there's not really any durable like uh, time spent out of power, you know, you don't have much of an incentive to recalibrate as a party after an election. The Republicans after 2020 are a very good example of that. Compare them to after 2012. After 2012, they're like, oh, yeah, we got to get do better with women and Latinos right. and all these things. And not that there was unanimity on that, but they at least had a conversation. Um, now, after 2020, there's no such conversation. Um, there's just a sense of like, um, we're, we might win the congressional majorities without having to repudiate Trump at all. Exactly. Um, so why should we? And yeah, so, but I mean, again, like, so this is part of the one, this also helps lock in calcification. You can see how there's sort of a self-reinforcing cycle. It, what would uncalcify politics a little bit would be for like parties to recalibrate, you know, change their platform, change their appeals, change the way they talk to the public. They try to, to bring in new groups of voters, but if they're not really going to change because they don't need to change to win the next election. So what should un, like, unstick politics or the party, at least electoral politics, uh, it's not quite clear. So that's part of the, one of the things that kind of keeps this pattern you know, reproducing itself. And it's a fascinating phenomenon because you think about it, Republicans have lost popular vote in I think it's what, seven of the last eight presidential elections. Mm -hmm. they've, they've only won more than 50% one time, which is in 2004. That's yeah. not a good performance on a presidential level. And they've won two in which they actually lost the popular yeah. vote. And the thing about it is that you would, one might conclude from that that you need to change 
your political messaging and your political appeal and your and your policy positions, and they've done none of that. They've actually doubled down on the yep. positions that that led them to yep. that rather poor performance. Yep. And there, it, maybe there'll come a time when they lose just enough that they would start to to revisit these same questions, but it hasn't happened yet. I want to answer, I'll answer really quick Ron Irving's question in the chat um, in the role of gerrymandering here. Um, so I, I think the answer is yes, but it's particularly true in this. I, would know, I don't know if that's true as much prior to this round of redistricting, but this round of redistricting, certainly. Um, this round of redistricting, it's, it's, you know, one of its most salient features is the decline of competitive districts. Yes. Um, we've, we've, unlike the 2010-2011 the redistricting, this redistricting is not really generating a huge pro-Republican advantage. Um, it may be locking in some of the existing Republican advantage, but it's not adding to it. It's not, that advantage is not as large as it was in 2011. But one of the things it has done is reduce the number of competitive seats. So we've got now increasing number of, of solidly Republican, solidly Democratic districts. Does that reinforce calcification? I would argue yes at the, at the, at the House voting level because the, a candidate has less incentive to try to have to win over a bunch right. of swing voters to, in order to win the race. They're going to win comfortably on the basis of the support of their own. Party. But there's another part of it too. They have more to fear, not from a Democrat, but from another, a different, from a fellow Potentially. Republican. Potentially. Yeah. And I think that, that, that dynamic has become, I think, particularly important on the, in the Republican party. Um, you know, you go back and you look at like when AOC won, and that was such a dramatic victory in the primary. That was like one of the few Democratic incumbents to lose that entire cycle. Right. I think you lost that whole cycle. Yeah. But, so, but, you know, but, so, but on the Republican side, there are more examples and, and some pretty high profile examples, especially of the of the anti-Trump candidates, like Michael was saying. And so um, even if the the risk of losing in a primary is objectively pretty low, it's high enough high enough perceived or it's per perceived as high enough maybe it's actually exaggerated in those perceptions but nevertheless you know it doesn't give you much of an incentive um to to to, to publicly repudiate or break with whatever you want the partisan in question to break with whether it's you want them to break with trump or you want them to break with some kind of democratic party orthodoxy of some kind right as a smart yeah. consultant said to me once, the one thing a politician fears more than anything else is a close, is a competitive election. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, For good reason. You know, yeah, you don't want to right. deal with it. Uh, right. I need to go soon. So, I'm going to have to ask you my pet theory of 2020 and how it relates to 2024. So, my, yeah. my pet theory that COVID didn't matter, that, that people's views about Donald Trump, and, and, and look, at one point, one data point in the book I found fascinating within counties, the shifts between 2016 and 2020 were the smallest in the past 70 years which tells me that not much changed in four years. Yep. And my perspective on this has always been, I remember, I remember writing this in like February, March, 2020, I thought Trump was gonna lose because basically he was losing every head to head matchup with Biden. His poll numbers didn't seem to shift at all. They weren't affected by the economy. This is probably pre COVID. And I think my view was people made their minds up about Trump. And I'm curious what you, what you, cause you make a point that his numbers did improve a little bit yep. in April and May, I think it was because of COVID. But then they went back to where they were before by the time the election yep. came out. So yep. give me your thoughts on your pet theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I would say like what people thought COVID might be is um, in some sense, they might thought it might tr the, the, the need to respond to this global pandemic might kind of transcend partisanship right. in certain right, ways. Right. But of course, what it ultimately does is it just becomes subsumed into the same partisan debates, partisan divides. That's driven, of course, in part by Trump himself. 
Um, And his sort of uh, desire to kind of move past it quickly, that was what he perceived to be in his own political benefit. And so that, I think, by by when he turned and started criticizing these state-level restrictions and criticizing the Democratic governors who employed them in Michigan and Virginia and all that, that, I think, is what, of course, you can start to see public opinion begin to shift and, and Republicans to become much less concerned about the pandemic. And that's where the partisanship is. And you make this point also on George Floyd too. There was consensus after, after the murder of George Floyd and that quickly disappeared once yeah. that Republicans made into yeah. a partisan issue. Yeah, and the only, the only way in which I think you could imagine that COVID um, might have mattered uh, is had Trump taken the pandemic more seriously, his approval rating might have gone up and stayed up. And it would have, we have all these data from other world leaders and from state governors and the, and a lot of leaders benefited from this pandemic. Yes. Politically. They like they, their yes. approval ratings went up and stayed up. But in order to do that, I think you had to be perceived as like taking it seriously. Now it, it might not even mean like in, implementing the right policies. Cause of course state policymakers got it wrong. Like everyone was learning in real time. But I think the, if if Trump had behaved differently and had it had a at least a, a little bit of a sustained gain in people's perceptions of him and then had won the election, we would have said that COVID mattered. Of course. That, of course. But we didn't live in that world. We lived in the world where COVID becomes part of the same old partisan polarization. We, at, the we end also, of the, at the end of the day, it's not it's not rearranging very much. It's just it's just fitting into these pre-existing patterns. Right. And we also don't live in a world in which Donald Trump is capable of, the, of what, you're, what you're describing. I mean, I think that's the other part of it, too. He's not that politician. And you yeah. make this point that over and over again, he chooses the policy that and, and the, the rhetoric that appeals yeah. to his core supporters yep. Yep. And, and consistently alienates not just, you know, Democrats, but a majority of the electorate in, his, in, in, the, in the positions that he yeah. takes. Yeah. So let me... Go yeah. ahead. Sorry. No, I was gonna say this is remarked on by journalists at the time, like, and by Republicans who are frankly concerned, like, why can't Trump help himself by his own stated goals, his own priorities, his own desire for re-election? He's not doing something that's optimal for him. Um, it's a fascinating case study, and you know, usually we talk about politicians as being, you know, rational creatures to some right. extent. They're willing to adapt. They'll flip flop on issues. They'll change their positions. They'll do what they need to do to win. We just talked about Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio recalibrating, right? Exactly. And of Trump. But Trump is, is not someone who is inclined to t- change. In fact, he says as much as a quote from an interview with Maureen Dowd in the book where he thinks that like what he did in 2016, he won the election. So he should just keep doing it. Right. And I mean, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't work the same way when you're, you're the incumbent trying to run for re-election in really challenging national conditions. And I'll make the point about Rubio and Graham. I've criticized them, you know, up, up every possible way. I, I, I'm also the first to argue they have made very rational political choices. Yeah, sure. And actually, I would argue even smart political choices. Morally, no, but smart, yes. Okay, yes. so last question, you have to go. What does this, what does this sort of um, uh, hardening of views about Trump tell us about 2024? In other words, I know it's a little hard to get ahead of ourselves here, but yep. can we, could we possibly surmise that Trump's unpopularity, people's views about him being sort of in, set in stone, you know, into 2020, does that limit his ability to potentially win back the White House in 2024? Yeah, absolutely it does. I mean, I, I think, first of all, there's no question Republicans can take back the White House easily, right? Like, yes, you, agreed. you know, with Biden, Biden's approval in the low 40s, the inflation rate stays up. That's an easy, easy, potentially easy win, depending on exactly how low Biden's approval is by um, 2024. However, 
I think with Trump as your nominee, you're just imposing a handicap on yourself because if people's Trump himself is unlikely to become anything approaching popular. Yeah. And so as a consequence, you know, you're you're walking in there knowing that you're going to try to beat unpopularity with unpopularity when you could go in there and try to beat unpopularity with someone who's at least like a replacement level politician with low, like slightly favorable approval ratings. So that to me would be, you know, if I were, you know, telling the Republican Party what they should think about in 2024, I would say, do you really want to to dance with with this guy again, given that you know he's not going to be able to transcend a fairly large and seemingly durable reservoir of negative sentiment? Yes, that's right. I mean, to me, it's, it's, it would be, it's not that they can't win with Trump. Like I'm never going to say never, right? I'm just going to say that if I were playing the percentages, I would assume that a, a decent Republican alternative to Trump would have a better chance than Trump himself. Now, the one thing, and I know you have to go, but I, I just, on I, the midterm election does change things, right? If yep. let's say Democrats do hold the House and the Senate, yep. I mean, that's in a weird way bad for Biden, right? Isn't it usually good for an incumbent president to have uh, the other party win in the midterms, that way you can sort of run the, the whole dare, you know, Harry Truman do nothing Congress kind of a thing. Um, Potentially, right? Potentially, if you know, if you if there's any risk that part of what your challenges as an incumbent president is that you're you know you pursue too much ambitious policy and voters want to put the brakes on it, well, a divided government will put the brakes on for you. Yes. Um, and you you know, and it gives you, of course, an easy enemy you know to talk about all the time. Uh, I don't. At the end of the day, I think from 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 Biden's perspective. Uh, that the effect of divided government perhaps helping him, you know, would he, he needs much more than that. You know, he would really need the economy, the inflation rate to return sure. to something like a, a, a more reasonable level. But yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think there 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 can be some political benefit for presidents, even though it's clearly going to stymie their policy ambitions. I mean, I can make the argument that if Democrats say take they, they win two seats in the Senate and they win, they take they hold the House. There'll be a real push to move forward a lot of very, you know, progressive agenda items, which certainly create a backlash. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think they'll have a little bit. We'll see how much learning they've done from the first two years of Biden's term and and some of the challenges they face with those, you know, getting those agreement on those progressive goals. I mean, if they learn from that experience, they'll know they're going to they're going to need to start with more modest ambitions in the next Congress. Um, but it remains to be seen whether that's true. I think there's a real concern that like, again, in an era of partisan parity, there's a real concern that you don't have long, you're never gonna have long in power. So you need to do as much as you possibly can. But you know, at the same time, that partisan may not play out this way because of the abortion decision. That's what is so- yeah, It'd be really interesting. So we might, instead of narrow Republican majorities, we might end with narrow Democratic majorities. And yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I, I know you have to go. So I'm gonna let you go. This Thank you so awesome. much for this, Michael. John, I could spend all day talking to you. I so appreciate it. Thanks everyone for joining us. I'm gonna stay on a little bit for some questions from from folks, but John, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Very much, I appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Thank you all. Bye.